Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning and happy holidays. It's 2017, almost the end of the year. And this is the time of year that we're thankful for so many things, our families, our friends, a worn roof over our heads. But I suspect no one can be more thankful than someone who has won their freedom. So I'm honored today to introduce you to Dean Gillespie, a man who served 20 years in prison for a brutal crime he didn't commit. And we're we're going to tell you about that case. And then I also have University of Cincinnati law professor Mark Godsey, who, who headed up the team whose efforts resulted in Dean's exoneration. Good morning, Dean and Mark. Good morning. Thanks for having us on. And thank you, Mark. And, and good morning, Dean, too. Morning. I'm, I'm so tickled to have you on the show today. And, and uh, I know... This is, uh, Dean, this is a particularly significant year for you because you've been completely exonerated. Yes, that's correct. Uh, July 26th of uh, this year, I was totally exonerated and uh, enlisted in the uh, National Registry of Exonerees, the 2,076th person in the United States to be exonerated since uh, 1989. Wow. That's uh, just fabulous. Just so fabulous. Yeah. So yeah, um, let, let me lay, before we get into your case, Dean, let me, let's lay some groundwork here. I'd like to hear um, from Mark how he went from being a prosecutor to becoming involved in, in the <laughs> Innocence Project. So can you tell us about that, Mark? Yeah, it's sort of a, a different evolution, I guess you should say, and I um. Uh, I recently wrote a book called Blind Injustice, and the first chapter is just about that. Um, I was a federal prosecutor in New York City and was very, you know, prosecutor's prosecutor, very hard-nosed. Um, and I wanted to go into academia. I wanted to become a law professor. And the first place where I got a job had an innocence project already. And in mm-hmm. my first year teaching, um, the professor who ran it was on sabbatical, so the dean was sort of like, hey, man, uh, you've got this criminal investigation background. We need somebody to run this innocence project. Um, so you're, you're, the, you're the guy. And I was, as a prosecutor, kind of skeptical and thought, you know, I can't really say no. Um, did you feel conflicted? And I remember the first meeting. I'm sorry? Did you feel conflicted, Mark? Yeah, I mean, I, the first meeting I sat there and listened to the students talk about the cases, and I was rolling my eyes internally. And just thinking, you know, this a bunch of, you know, bleeding heart students. And they talked about one guy's case in particular, Herman May, and they, the students had just visited him in prison, and they were totally convinced he was innocent, and you know, I just remember thinking, this is so stupid. And then uh, DNA testing was done in the case, and it proved him innocent. He was released. And so it was like I called the first chapter of my book eye-opener because that was the first thing that sort of opened my eyes. And then I spent the rest of the year then sort of gradually learning that I'd been in denial. And I, as a prosecutor, I'd been in denial about a lot of problems in the system. And so, you know, the very next year, I got a job at the University of Cincinnati College of Law. And Ohio was the largest state that didn't have an innocence project yet. So with some other people, we founded one there. Uh, back in 2003, because by that time I'd become a true believer in this movement. And uh, since then, since 2003, when we opened the door, we 25 people in Ohio together served 471 years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. Oh, oh my gosh. That's since 2003? Yeah, and, mm-hmm. so in how, 14 years. In 14 years, and how many people were exonerated again? 25 that served 471 years in prison, including That's three a, that were on death row. And, uh, you know, one of our clients, Ricky Jackson, um, came within a couple months of his execution date uh, at one point before he was moved on to life in prison because of the technicality in his sentencing. Um, so if not for pure luck, he would have been executed a long time ago, but was mm-hmm. fortunately was able to survive, prove his innocence, and be exonerated after serving 39 years in prison mm. for a murder he didn't commit. You know, I never, I, I never get over being astonished. Um, so are you still in contact with your former colleagues as a U.S. prosecutor? 
You know, a few of them, but not really. I mean, I left the prosecutor's office in 2001, so, you know, 16 years ago. But, you know, interestingly, mm-hmm. I was on a book tour in October, and I went to New York for a week, and I spoke at NYU, and they got one of, they got one of my former bosses at the prosecutor's office to be on the panel to oh, sort wow. of, like, you know, debate, debate me on the issues in the book. And I was really nervous about it, uh, you know, because I'm sort of coming <laughs> after my old prosecutor's office in the book. And his name was Mark Pomerantz, and he was actually very welcoming and said, I actually agree with all of this. And he said wow. it helped me understand things that I hadn't really articulated in my mind yet, like the sort of ideas were floating. And this helped me sort of crystallize some of the problems that I, deep down, knew were there. And so it was really sort of affirming um, to have that response. That's, that's so exciting. Uh, and, and, Dean, you... You were a fortunate man to defend this Innocence Project, weren't you? Oh, uh, I, when the Innocence Project gets involved with your case, you're you're uh, you've hit the lottery. Um, so, yeah, I hit the lottery on that for sure um, because uh, you know, uh, being a new new organization there, and then having Mark running it, and then once I get to know Mark, who is probably one of the greatest legal minds in the world. Uh, and him be personally involved with my case, you know, I couldn't have got any better of a, of a lottery draw that right there. I hit the mega millions with that. That's uh, just amazing. And so Mark, tell me how this works. I know you worked with a, a group of students and I'd, I'd like to mention them actually, cause I think they need to get the credit too. Um, yeah, you work with a bunch of students and how, how was this process at a university innocence project? Yeah, well, we're, we're now one of the bigger projects. So when Don Cranley, he's now the mayor of Cincinnati, when he and I started this back in 2003, it was just two of us with no support staff and a bunch of students. And the students are law students, so they've already graduated from college. They're getting their law degrees. They sign up to work with us for one year, and they work over the summer and then the next school year. And we have 20 at a time. And uh, through time, we've, we've gotten so many um, new cases and everything that we've started doing a lot of fundraising and now we have actually a staff of nine and we have I think we have seven attorneys working in the coming year so we've had over 8,000 Ohio inmates write to us since we opened our doors in 2003 they're wanting our attention and I'd say about half of them off the bat with very little investigation you can determine it's not going to go anywhere you know they're not really claiming that they're innocent they're saying my sentence mm-hmm. is too stiff or something like that we only deal with true innocent I didn't do it you know, the person wasn't there and so after you weed out about half of them who aren't really claiming innocence, um, you know, a big chunk of the next group, with a little investigation, you can kind of tell they're guilty. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. you catch them with a bunch of lies. And it's not surprising that guilty inmates would try to, you know, use the Innocence Project. Um, but, you know, there's a decent number of cases that continue to look good and look like the person might be innocent as the, the more you dig into it. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the cases, the evidence is just lost. So there's nothing you can do. There's no DNA testing you can do. Uh, we had a bill passed yeah. in 2010 to require mm-hmm. the state DNA. But there's a lot of luck involved, too. And so it's old-fashioned detective work. The students roll up their sleeves and start investigating these cases. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately for the inmates, it's a lot of luck. For sure. And so then, so then what happens? Do uh, one or two or three students go visit, like with Dean's case? Uh, Dean, did you have somebody from the SS Project come and visit you? Yeah. Uh, basically, we're uh, usually assigned uh, two students, and uh, two students will come up uh, most of the time with a lawyer uh, to visit. And I'll tell you, that's one of the greatest visits you get. Um, mm-hmm. First off, it's people who believe you, you know. I was in there for so long, you know, you people, people just start fading away and things like that. And, uh, I was very fortunate to have a great support system, uh, in my case, but when you have these kids come in, I'll tell you what, they're some of the smartest people you've ever ran into. Um, they're coming in or telling you, giving the updates and, uh, you know, letting you know what's happening because there's, you're sitting so long without anybody letting you know what's happening. And then these kids come in and, and it's just, the kids, to me, are the greatest part of the program because they're the future of this uh, movement. They're the future that's going to get this changed and mm-hmm. to stop these wrongful incarcerations eventually. For sure. And so when were you first contacted? What year was that that you were first contacted by the students? 
Oh, my uh, my mother went down and contacted Mark as soon as there was an article in the paper that they were going to open an innocence oh. project in, in Ohio. She went straight to him and, and got him. <laughs> yeah, she was, uh, as Dean always says, uh, standing on my neck. <laughs> the day after the newspaper article came out saying, you're going to take this case with my son. Benedict. Yeah. And uh, she was pretty adamant. And when you see that kind of passion, you want to look closer because usually that kind of passion comes out of the truth. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, and what year was that, Mark? Do you know? That was January of 2003. The article in the paper was December of um, 2002. And we didn't even open our doors until May of 2003. We had our first fundraiser in December of 2002 um, to start getting the money to, to start the project. And then uh, right after the holidays, she was down. She tracked me down. was in my office with boxes of materials telling me how we're going to take the case. But I started working on it before I, we even opened our doors. That's and that, you know, that's such a credit to you, Mark, because many people wouldn't have done that. Many people would have, you know, we have to wait till we get it organized, you know, all of that. So, but just to put this in perspective, so you started working on it in two thousand, say early two thousand three. Yeah, uh, let me give you a little timeline to show the complexity of these cases. We started investigating in two thousand three. Uh, we didn't file. We didn't uh-huh. finish our investigation and file to free him until February 2007. It took four years in court to free him. He was freed in 2011, and then the state kept appealing our victories and trying to overturn our win. And so it stayed in court all the way until July of this year, 2017, when the final attempt to appeal for them ran out, and uh, we were finally able to close the door forever. So we investigated it for four years, and then it was in litigation for a decade. Fourteen years from the time you start. I, I mean, yeah. you know, we get into this a lot with people who, even at the trial level, they're convicted that attorneys and investigators may believe that in their innocence. And you talk about appeals, and this is astonishing, 14 years on an innocent case, innocent man, uh, to, to get them unconvicted, so to speak. So, okay, so the investigation, um, you send a couple of students to meet with Dean, and then what's the next step? They, they come back, and then what? Oh, well, I mean, when we start a case, we do public records requests for all the files from the police department, the prosecutor's office. Uh, we go to the defense attorneys that represented the person so many years ago and get all their files. And so the students are doing deep dives, and they're learning the case inside now, exactly what happened, what kind of witnesses were interviewed, who testified at trial. And, um, you know, in, in this case, Dean's case had been, it's a very complicated case, but his case had been cold for a couple of years. No one had been arrested. It was, it was serial rapes. It was a guy in the Dayton, Ohio area that would pose as a police officer. He'd flash a badge, and he would accuse women of shoplifting, like in a you know, mall parking lot. Broad daylight with people mm-hmm. all around, so very brazen. And then he would get them in a car and would pull out a gun and take them out to an isolated place and, uh, and rape them. And um, the case was cold for a couple of years, and it didn't start moving until a new detective took over the case and quickly arrested Dean. And so when we talked to the original detectives, um, and the case, that's when it sort of broke open, because um, that's when we got the evidence that there was police misconduct, that um, you know, there was evidence that Dean was innocent, and the new detective had come in and, or somebody had done something with that evidence. Um, it was, you know, all, that's really what broke the case. So it's a matter of really digging in and talking to every possible witness and seeing where those trails lead. Mm-hmm. Now, in this case with Dean, wasn't he implicated by somebody that he had worked with? Super. Yeah, in his case, uh, again, his cases were the case was unsolved. It's a cold case, and there were wanted posters all over the Dayton area with a composite sketch of the perpetrator. Dean had a, no criminal history whatsoever, worked at EM plant, and uh, the poster had been on the wall there for a couple of years, and Dean was a youth agitator and had been in fights with his management, and they frankly hated each other. And when things got really heated, uh, one of the managers took Dean's GM photo, went down to that police department and said, hey, I think this guy looks like the composite sketch. Um, the original detectives on the case investigated Dean and said, this is a joke. He doesn't match the description. Uh, the, the one of the rapists saw the pants size of the perpetrator. Dean's way too big. 
he couldn't fit into those pants. They wrote a report and eliminated them, and it was clear to them that this co-worker of Dean's had just had a vendetta. And they were, you know, that's not uncommon to see that sort of thing. Um, huh. And then those two detectives retired, one with the Arizona, one with the Florida. And lo and behold, a new detective takes over the case who's really good friends with Dean's work enemy. And so the file that had all the evidence eliminating Dean as a suspect then goes missing. And um, the case is started up against Dean in a very misleading way. I mean, it is all sorts of crazy things happened in the case. But there was evidence that the officer was manipulating witnesses and lying to him and trying to get him on board um, and all kinds of stuff. So most of our cases involves not intentional misconduct by a police or prosecutor, maybe just you know, the system's messed up and they're just following mm-hmm. procedures that mm-hmm. aren't as reliable. But this is one case where a fair inference can be made that was somebody who was trying to frame Dean. And and I suspect, Mark, as a former prosecutor, this this must have been astonishing for you to see this. Yeah, I mean, it, I saw a lot in this case that astonished me. I mean, um, you know, for example, I'll tell you one quick story to show how the system fights back. Um, on the weekend when the race for Dean was camping with his friends in Kentucky, and uh, he had numerous witnesses that testified at that trial. One of them had a written record that they had been down there that weekend. But one of the problems was the campground where they stayed didn't have any receipts backing it up. And at trial, the defense had a belief that the detective in charge had gone down there and taken the receipts. But at trial, the detective claimed that, you know, no, he and no one else in the department was down there and took those receipts. So when we were investigating the case and it was in the paper, a different officer contacted us and said he had information that could be helpful. When we met with him, he said that the, that the officer who arrested and convicted Dean had admitted to him at one point that he had gone down there and taken those receipts. So that wow. means the officer committed perjury trial. But then when I tried to get an affidavit from this guy, you know, he didn't want to cross the blue line. He was saying, mm-hmm. you know, all my friends or police officers, I don't want to, I don't want to cooperate. I just want to let you know that you're on the right tracks to keep going. So I ended up certainly recording this guy. And I got him on tape talking about this. And we went to court and revealed this, you know, shenanigans that was going on. The, the elected judge in the case at the time was more interested in trying to get me prosecuted for secretly reporting uh, a police officer, which isn't even illegal in Ohio. Um, you know, so that was so shocking to me that I had evidence of this cover-up that was going on, and, you know, all these bad things that had happened, and, and the original trial judge didn't want to do it. He was so aligned with law enforcement. He didn't want to do anything about it. In fact, he wanted to come after me. And I write about that in the book, too, in, in, uh, in Chapter 3. Um, so one of the things I talk about is, you know, with elected judges and elected prosecutors, you get all this politics involved, and people want to look tough on crime, and then you know judges and prosecutors want to help each other out in cases because they're running for re-election, and they want endorsements and all this kind of stuff. It's a it's a pretty messed up system when you really get involved with it. So, uh, in this case, uh, is uh, Ohio a two party recording state or one party? One party. So it was completely legal that I recorded the office. Right. Yeah, the judge just didn't put a law on it, and had a status conference and said, and I didn't know why we called a status conference. And he said, you know, I love your party there, but I'm turning over the tapes of Godsey recording the police officer to the U.S. attorneys and federal prosecutors for investigation and prosecution. He violated the law. And I was like, that's not illegal. And we had a big discussion. The prosecutors even admitted it wasn't illegal. So the judge was sort of calling him, okay, okay, well, I'll keep researching it. But, I mean, that just sort of shows that the mental state there that, you know, here we had evidence of, of police misconduct and a possible cover-up, and the judge is more concerned with trying to go after the defense attorney who exposed it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's outrageous. And, uh, it, I, I, never get, I never get over this. <laughs> I just never get over yeah. it. But, okay, so what was the biggest obstacle you encountered uh, through the process of getting Dean exonerated? I mean, it literally was that judge, because we filed in 2007, and the a judge that was on the case then was so biased that he denied everything, and so it required us to go on all these complicated appeals, which slowed the victory down. We eventually won on appeals, um, and then after that, that judge left the bench, and a new one took over, um, but that judge, didn't know, in my opinion, it didn't matter what the evidence was, you know, he was going to side with the prosecution. Um, and we have this phenomenon of, and it's, it's, a hum, it's human nature, prosecutors want to And so I write about that in, uh, in chapter two of my book, like the psychology of, of not wanting to admit you made a mistake, you know, very much like the mentality I had when I was a prosecutor. 
And so uh-huh. they, they go to all these great lengths in the evidence and try to say the person is still guilty despite all the evidence of innocence. And so we have prosecutors that were very psychologically impressed in this case as well. Um, no matter what we said, they weren't going to investigate or take it seriously. And, you know, we had a judge who was just walking in lockstep with the prosecution. So with that mentality, that resistance from the system that we see not just in this case, but unfortunately in a lot of other cases, it was the biggest obstacle. <laughs> So some some district attorney offices have established integrity units to look at possible wrongful convictions. Has anything like that happened where you are? Well, um, we have one now in Cleveland. And it started a few years ago, and I would say at the beginning it was not very effective. Um, you know, there's an institute at the University of Pennsylvania Law School called the Quattrone Center uh, that deals with how to reform prosecutorial mindsets. And they have a list of best practices. And, for example, a conviction integrity unit, which is sort of like an innocence project inside a prosecutor's office, mm-hmm. should hire criminal defense attorneys and people who have a different view. Because if you're a prosecutor your whole career, you're going to have confirmation bias and you're not going to be able to look at the evidence objectively, not just mm-hmm. as, as we've seen. And so they didn't really follow those best practices early on, and so we didn't find it very effective. Uh, but the new prosecutor that came in about a year ago, named Marco Malley, he started following those practices and he criminal unit, um, and it's, it seems like it's completely changed. We've had some really good luck, and so we hope they become a model for the state. In fact, um, we're putting out a conference with them next June in Cleveland for prosecutors all across the state to teach them about this and for Cleveland to show the other prosecutors in the other cities how this can be done effectively. And we, so we think that the Cleveland office is making great strides. Uh, but, you know, I, I talk about this in the book again. I mean, this is the future of the innocence movement. A lot of these conviction integrity units aren't effective because they don't follow the best practices. It's mm-hmm. prosecutors looking at their own cases, and nobody mm-hmm. can really look at their own cases fairly. But there's some offices that are doing it correctly, like in Houston and Brooklyn and I think Cleveland. Um, and when they do it that way, it can be extremely effective for justice. So that's what we have in the future, something we need to see more of. Absolutely. So let's go back to Dean. Dean, let's. I want to hear about your journey. So... Tell me what happened. You were tell me what happened from the point you were arrested forward. How did that all transpire? Uh, well, you go through the the, uh, the the process of them, you know, telling you everything that they're charging you with and all that, and you're dumbfounded by what are you even talking about? Um, mm. You know, they're asking you where were you at uh, on this day two and a half years ago, and I don't know of very many people who know where they were at on a certain day two and a half years from from today. Uh, back. So, uh, you know, you go through that whole process of trying to figure out where you were at, what was going on then. And, um, you know, luckily for me, I had people who had, uh, um, had notes of things that we, that, that had happened on those days. Uh, one of my friends, uh, dads raised, uh, hunting dogs and, uh, he had a diary of when, uh, some pups were born and we had had, had been in Kentucky that, that, uh, weekend, uh, when they accused me of this stuff. And when we came back, he had logged in, these pups were born, and we had remembered we had moved the pups down in the cellar uh, because it was the middle of summer and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got lucky that someone even knew where we were at so we could start the process of, you know, going back and figuring this out, you know. And then once we had this, uh, and like Mark said, uh, uh, with this court where we're at here, um, they just, you know, they didn't care. You know, I, I was with other people. I had three other people I was in Kentucky with. And um, the, then we had, we had like 22 witnesses. Uh, but they, when my witnesses got up, most of the people that, that I uh, uh, know and grown up with, I've known my whole life. And um, so when they started testifying, the judge just basically said, after four of them testified, uh, these people are going to be saying the same thing over and over. They're just going to mm-hmm. protect their friends. And we're, we have no reason to hear the rest of these these 22 other people. Mm-hmm. And so right then you start wondering, what the heck? Um, but that's the way it was through the whole trial. Uh, and then you get convicted, and it's like, you know, what in the world is going on? You know, I believed in the system. I absolutely believed in the system. And then all of a sudden this happens to you, and you're like, what the heck? And, um, you know, halfway through my trial, they came to me and offered me 30 days. They said, you take the plea deal down to the lowest charge they had, 30 days, go through receptions and, uh, you know, get a number, and uh, then they'll release me. And I told them, I said, look, 30 days, 30 minutes, 
30 years. Uh-huh. I did not commit these crimes, and I will never, ever say that I did. Um, uh-huh. And at that time, I had took three polygraph tests by their person, uh, but then they didn't want to use it because it proved that I was telling the truth. Right. Um, and I thought, you know, why, you know, why in the world is this going on? Um, you know, the next thing I heard out of them was 22 to 56 years, and I spent 20 of those years in prison. Uh, for something I absolutely had nothing to do with or knew anything about. So, uh, and, and, Dean, yeah, go ahead. Ha- go ahead. Go ahead. It's just uh, you know it makes no sense. The 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 uh, like Mark said the uh, uh, the way these some of these prosecutors are that they just don't want to admit that they've made a mistake. They don't want to look back at the facts. They don't want to look at things uh, on how they are. You know, we had a uh, um, anonymous tip come in to where we found the person we believe committed these crimes. And they didn't even want to hear nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It destroys your case if they have another suspect. So, yeah, uh, yeah. so Dean, where, where were you when you were arrested? I was, I was, at, I was in Fairborn, Ohio. I was in uh, at my house. I owned a house in uh, Fairborn here, and I was actually sitting on the front porch. Uh, I'd come in from work. And I was, I was uh, working on a piece of uh, antique furniture, and I was sitting on the porch with it. And all of a sudden, these cop cars turned down at the end of the road, and you could just hear them, you know, flooring the gas to the floor. And uh, they started running the stop signs, and I'm like, wow. You know, they got to the mice, to the, where I was at. After, after me, three houses down was a dead end, and they were on the gas passing that. And I actually looked down the street to see where they were going. And mm-hmm. boom, they stopped right in front of the house, guns drawn, you know, screaming and hollering and just going crazy. And I'm like, well, what's going on, you know? And, uh, oh, that was crazy. It was a nightmare for real. How many cop cars? There was four police cars, two from my town and two from the town that came to arrest me. Wow. And so they, they took you into custody and then yep. tell Talk about what happens they, next. They, yeah, they, they came to the house. They searched my house up and down and all over, looking for anything and everything. And uh, one of the guys actually told my mother that I would I would never see the light of day again. I'd be in prison the rest of my life. Um, and uh, they take you down. They book you through the system. And, you know, they start asking you all these questions. And, and uh, you know, uh, and no clue. You got no clue what they're talking about when you didn't do nothing. And they're screaming and yelling all this stuff that you don't know anything about. How do you react to that? You know, right? How um, old were and you? at that time, you know, I was kind of a, I was a smart aleck, and I, I probably gave smart aleck answers. But you know, how do you <laughs> yeah. react to those things uh, uh, right. when you know nothing about them? I don't know. How How old were you, Dean? I, I turned twenty five years old in the county jail. Okay. All right. So then how long did it take from the time you were arrested to the time you went to trial? Uh, they came and arrested me in uh, the, it was around the middle of the beginning of September of 1990. Mm-hmm. And then February 12th, 1991, I was sentenced to 22 to 56 years. Okay. And how long was the trial? The trial was seven days. Seven days. Yeah. Okay. And so who was your attorney? Did you have a, a, a public defender or did your family hire an No, attorney? I had a paid attorney. Our next door neighbor uh, went to law school and suggested a friend of his that that uh, uh, he knew from law school or something like that. And uh, so that's who we went with. He was from the area. And uh, so, we, you know, my parents mortgaged their house to pay him. And did you feel like his representation was good? I I I have different opinions than other people do. Okay, all right. Okay, <laughs> I will. I won't go into that any further. Um, uh, so, what about the the person that was raped? So it was you were charged with uh, uh, rape, kidnapping, kidnapping, rape, and armed robbery. And armed robbery. Okay. So what happened with that person? Well, they, they uh, went on and, and lived their life. Um, uh, you know, I don't have no animosity towards them because the way this police officer conducted his business was based on nothing but lies and deception. And mm-hmm. he lied to these victims that he had the right person. He made so much crap up to make this work for mm-hmm. them that they believed him. 
You know, I have a dear friend, uh, Jennifer Thompson, who wrote the book Picking Cotton. Um, and she was done the same way. She was done to where she, she still believes to this day the person who raped her was the person she identified and knows for a fact that it was not him, but she can't get it out of her head because of the interrogation tactics they used on her to, to, to change her thoughts on how the crime happened. Um, and uh, okay, she knows you- exactly who committed the crime and, and uh, it knows it wasn't the person she accused. Okay. We need to take a quick break. I w- this is a good place to do it. We'll be right back with Dean and Mark. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with uh, Mark Godsey, the uh, professor of law at um, University of Cincinnati, and Dean Gillespie, uh, 2017 exoneree of Nice to say that, huh, Dean? <laughs> 2017. <laughs> it's it's so, very nice to say. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we're talking about the victim. So I'm assuming she testified in the trial, correct? Yeah, they definitely testified, yes. Yeah, it was actually okay. three victims. It was, it was a serial rapist that hit um, three times in a very short period of time. Well, all okay. the same MO. So three victims, all and all were... Um, Kidnapping, rape, and assault, or robbery, rather, are all three of them were the same. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they were they were exactly the same, uh, done exactly the same way. There was really no change between each crime at all. Okay, and so when they testified, Dean, did they identify you? Well, you know, they 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 identified me by what that cop had told them. But when the lawyer asked him, did the person who attacked you have a cleft chin? No, he did not. Obviously, Mr. Gillespie does. Did the person who attacked you have uh, severe acne scars on his jawline? Yes, he did. Obviously, Mr. Gillespie does not. Uh, There was 27 different things that he specifically pointed out from their thing, uh, from their testimony, um, that didn't match me at all. And it's, and it's the power of the victim pointing to somebody in that chair 
that convinces the jury every time. That's why 78% of wrongful convictions are based on wrong identification. Right. Right. And yeah, it's amazing to me that the jury deadlocked eight to four in favor of acquittal. When you have three victims take the stand and cry and say, I'm positive that's the guy who raped me, uh, you'd expect the jury to come back and convict in about 10 seconds. That normally yeah. happens. The fact that they were hung and they were eight to four in favor of acquittal shows you how problematic these three eyewitness identifications were. And it was only after the judge gave a couple more called Allen charges uh, where he's sort of like, you know, coercing the, the jury to come on, come on, rethink your positions, come to a unanimous decision, um, that they ultimately came back and convicted. Um, that was actually cited by the appellate courts later when they overturned his case. The fact that they were originally 8-4 to four in favor of acquittal shows how weak the evidence was. Mm-hmm. And then, oh my goodness, uh, so you were convicted. You must have been in shock. Oh, absolute did, did, total shock. And when you're sitting there in trial, Dean, did you did you think that you were going to be convicted, or how did you think that was going to break out? No, like I said earlier, I never dreamed that wrongful convictions ever happened. I I just believed in the system, and I thought there you know there's no way I I didn't do this, and we've proven that I didn't do this. You know how in the world that guilty plea ever came back? I don't know. But like he said, it was eight to four all the way till the end. When the mm-hmm. judge read that to uh, the mm-hmm. jurors, you know, they had ball games and, and the weekend coming up. They were going to be sequestered if they didn't reach a decision. Forty-five mm-hmm. minutes later, they had a decision, and it was guilty. Um, all based on the actions of the judge, in my opinion. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to find words to uh, communicate how serious this is. You know, and... and your position at, that you're innocent and the system will take care of you is so common. I, I think every yeah, we innocent, see that in so many of our cases. Yeah, every yeah, most everyone innocent I've people ever will tell you to, they were completely shocked when yeah, they got convicted. Yeah. yeah. So you you you're convicted. What happens then? You how long before you go to prison? Um. Well, I was in the county jail for for a while. Uh, send you to uh, what they call uh, receptions. You go through receptions. That's where they give you the number, your institutional number there, and decide what prison you're going to. Uh, so when I left there, they had assigned me to a close maximum security prison, which, you know, those are some of the most violent places in America uh, because most of those guys are not going home. You know, maximum security uh, guys are usually doing life or, or multiple life sentences or hundreds mm-hmm. of years. Um, so that's the first place I was sent to, and, and that's based, uh, I did. Ten- that's, huh? that's excuse me. That's based on how they classify you, and in your case, rape, aggravated robbery, and kidnapping is one of the most serious. So you get max, just because you're classified as a maximum prisoner. That's correct. Yeah. 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 So then you okay. got to go there and do you know a, a set amount of time, you know, with my sentence being 22 to 56 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I was eligible for parole in 16 years, so um, I did 10 years at the close max facility, and then they sent me to a medium minimum security place where I did 10 more years. So it must have been you met, you were a model prisoner. You must not have ever had any grievances or anything against you. Well, I never had anything that was, uh, you know, reg- logged. You know, I never had any issues that were, you know, anything major. No, uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you actually got released uh, in 2011. Mark, how did that happen? Why did they release him? Well, we filed our motions to exonerate him in 2007. Like I said before, we had a rule recalcitrant judge made it very difficult, so we had to appeal. Um, we eventually won in two different courts. Uh, we won in federal court in 2011 and then early 2012. We won on a different issue in the appellate state court. Um, so he, on two different grounds, he's won in two different courts, like a double victory. But the first one was in federal court, and that's on the police misconduct that I spoke about earlier. Um, the federal judge actually held, held a hearing, which is like a trial, where the original officers who investigated the case came and testified about how, you know, the tip about Dean had come in earlier, somebody with a vendetta. They had investigated him. It was clear he was innocent. They wrote um, a report to the file, eliminated him as a suspect, and then this you know, detective took over who was friends with, with Dean's work enemy and everything changed. But by then they'd retired and left the state. 
mm-hmm. um, and you know, and then the file had disappeared. So they, the the office, the judge heard all this testimony uh, about the police misconduct, and I think it was December fifteenth of two thousand eleven. Uh, ruled that um, it was a Brady violation, meaning police misconduct, and mm-hmm. Dina had to be released. And so it's about this time of year, it's six years ago, um, that Dean was released. And uh, your listeners, I, I don't want to uh, suggest a question, but I think that um, they should hear about Dean's reception home because it is Christmas time, and it's, and it's sort of like a good Christmas story. Dean, can you tell her about you're getting released and how that was, what happened? Yeah, please, please do, Dean. Tell us. Yeah, so... So I get uh, 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 it's on the news that evening that I'm going to be released, and uh, I had no clue that it was happening that day. I knew it Mm -hmm. was coming. I just had no clue it was going to be that day. My sister had come in from out of state for the holidays to visit, and uh, she came to visit me at the prison. So while the news was on, I'm in the visiting room, and uh, the whole prison knew I was leaving except for me, which is kind of strange. Um, (laughs) So I come out of the visiting room, and I'm going down the hall. They call me into the captain's office, and, uh, you know, I'm just thinking that, you know, oh, crap, here i got to be strip-searched again. And um, so uh, they tell me this, that I'm leaving. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know. And uh, I I was kind of prepared somewhat that I knew it was coming, but, I, like I say, no clue it was going to be that night. And uh, so I go through the whole process, and I go out front – there's no one there. Normally, when there's an exoneration, you know, the media is there, your lawyer's there, your family's uh-huh. there, everyone's there. Well, the prison uh-huh. wouldn't let anyone on the grounds. Um, and it was 7.30 at night, and I was scared to death. If you've ever watched Shawshank Redemption, uh, when uh-huh. they let the guy out the back gate and shoot him, you know, that's uh-huh. the only thing that kept going through my mind is what in the world. I'm, I mean, I have one. I'm fr- I'm going to be free at some point here. Now I'm I'm, I'm look like I'm getting set up to get shot, uh, and this is everything that's going through my mind. Sure. Uh, so anyway, there's a U.S. marshal there uh, because the federal court released me and put me on an ankle monitor to put the put the um, ankle monitor on me, and then she took me down the road to a bowling alley where everyone was at there. And, uh, you know, I get out and go into this bowling alley. The media's there and everything, uh, asking mm-hmm. me, you know, all kind of questions. And uh, then that once one of the media outlets said, uh, you know, how does it feel to be free? And I'm looking around the room, and I knew half the people in this bowling alley, other than my family and friends, because they were guards at the prison, and it was prison guard bowling night. Oh, my gosh. And, <laughs> can you imagine that? So, no, I can't. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, and I finally I get home, and, um, you know, it's just the same thing. The, the media's lined up and everything. But in the three days, the first three days that I was home, and you talk to any exoneree, they usually don't go to sleep for three or four days because you're afraid it's a nightmare and, or, or a dream, and you're going to mm-hmm. wake up back into the nightmare. Mm-hmm. And um, so I didn't go to sleep. But for the first three days that I was home, 600 people come to visit me at my parents' house over Christmas. And, it, you know, it's the most unbelievable thing ever um, to have that many people believe in you. Uh, I had a friend who started putting things on social media when social media started because when I went to prison, there was no social media. Right. People didn't have computers in their home. So right. um, once they did, he started putting it on there, and everyone knew, you know, that I was – I was when they was hearing some things and they knew I was home and – uh I mean, can you imagine being gone for 20 years, coming home, and 600 people come to see you in three days? I can't imagine being gone for 20 years and coming home, just for there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And actually, one of my buddies asked my dad, they said, hey, you know, there's probably going to be a lot of people coming. uh, um, And any time it gets overwhelming or there's too much going on, you just let me know, and I'll stop it. I'll have it stopped, and, and, you know, we'll figure something else out. And my dad told him, he said, son, it's been a morgue here for 20 years. Bring them on. Hmm. And, uh, and they did. They just kept coming and coming and coming. Now, hmm. Have you, and did you get any compensation from the state for your wrongful conviction? <laughs> Is that a uh, subject? The, state, the, the state of Ohio has a compensation package that is so... Uh, it's complicated and, and uh, hard to get. Um, 
point, we've got 25 people out, and at this point, half of our people will not get compensated the way the statutes wrote right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank God for Mark. He has uh, introduced a, a new bill with some with uh, Bill Sites uh, here. Uh, hopefully, we're going to get something changed in that. And, but compensation is a big issue that, uh, you know, half the states in America don't compensate. I know. Um, this is, that's a severe problem. You're taking someone's life away. Um, mm-hmm. for, for these many years and, and, and not, you know, you're not fixing it. Uh, and another, another issue that we have with this as exonerees is I was in prison for 20 years. I didn't get to pay into social security. So if I don't right. get compensated, I don't have any future income for that either. Yeah. And that's just, he does have a, a, what's called a section 1983 federal suit, um, which is ongoing. Um, you know, the, the state delayed everything with compensation by appealing all the way until 2000. Until this year, um, mm-hmm. you know, kept the case locked up, and it kept any possibility of suing locked up. So that part of the case is going, and he's got a very good case. I think it's going to be successful. As far as the state statutory compensation, he's right. The bill is problematic. We've introduced a new bill to sort of amend that and make it more fair. And if that amendment passes, then Dean will be able to get state compensation. And not only do you not get compensation, you don't even get. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, no, you know, no, 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 you very rarely hear a sorry, <laughs> very rarely. It has happened, but it's not very often. So I, I, yeah, I Dean want to won't be, be sure hearing that, it in his case. I'm sorry, what did you say, Mark? I said Dean won't be hearing it in his case. His, his prosecutors were appallingly close-minded and you know, fought every single little thing without even trying to do a fair investigation. They, they weren't going to admit a mistake no matter what. Yeah, well, that always bothers me. So I, I don't, I want to be sure we mention the students that worked on the case. I have a list of them here: um, Megan Collard, Lindsay Fleissner, Chelsea mm-hmm. Brent, Chelsea Brent, Caitlin Brown, Mike Capel, Kelly Schuchert, Jerry Jones, Janet, Jeanette McClelland, Katie Stanberry, Lindsay Gutierrez, Rima Kuchuk. Ashley Couch, Miranda Hamrick, Melissa Loggle, Amanda Smith, Ryan Houston, and Daryl Osich. Uh, sounds and like great they did a here. great job. Uh, yeah, under- and, and I've since I've been out, I've got to I've got to see almost every one of those kids, and uh, it, um, it's just hmm. it's just so nice to see that uh, you know they they went into this field of, of stuff. You know, they're lawyers, and, and uh, uh, we've got people who are, have become representatives, state representatives, things like that. It's just so nice to see that, you know, when these kids were coming in, they were so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and they still are, and, you know, they're in the fight, and it's just it, it's so beautiful to get a reconnect with those kids. I swear it's one of the greatest things ever. Yeah, Dean yeah. will have so students who worked on his case 10 years ago come and visit him at his house, and his mom will cook dinner for him and you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. It's wonderful. That's great. And, Mark, have any of them become prosecutors? On that list, um, I don't think any of them have become prosecutors, but we have had many um, OIP, Innocence Project, students become prosecutors. Um, and I always encourage the students. I say, that's the best thing I want you to do because I want you to go and help change the system from the inside. Um, so we very much encourage our students to have this experience, to have their eyes open, and then go become prosecutors because they can do the best, they can do the most change as prosecutors. And I, I just want to go back to, uh, Dean, you, you said you took three polygraphs and you, you were cleared completely. Uh, and just for our general audience out there that may not know, I mean, they may question, well, he took a polygraph. He passed a polygraph not only once but three times. Why didn't that exonerate him? And, and they should know, people should know, that that isn't ever entered as evidence and never can be presented in court. Yeah, polygraph yeah, is also inadmissible. Yeah. 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 And and what made him even matter was the guy who done it was the their guy, you know. It was their uh, their guy that they used for the FBI and and the state court and the police department and you know they just couldn't understand well there's something wrong, you know. And it that 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 to me just makes no sense. Why are you using it if you're not going to use it? Mm-hmm. You know? And it was their polygraph guy. So yeah. did your 
your attorney didn't have you take a polygraph for, with a private party? They they wanted they wanted to use their guy, and I was I'm fine. I was fine with that. That's great. Yeah. I knew I didn't do nothing wrong. Yeah, and, I can also add though that polygraphs are prone to false um, negatives. I mean, negative, if you pass right. it, it's a pretty good sign. But there are people who are telling the truth that the polygraph come back comes back and says they're lying. The mm-hmm. polygraphs aren't very reliable. Um, yeah. they're, you know, they're, they're, it's over inclusive in, t- in saying that people are lying. Yeah, I have. My husband was a former polygraph examiner, so <laughs> I'm familiar yeah. with it too. Okay, so Dean, what are you doing now? Besides uh, being a, the voice for the Innocence Project, what else are you doing? Uh, me and my dad go fishing all the time, and yeah. uh, I, me and my girlfriend, uh, just remodeled a 1963 Airstream camper, and uh, we are getting ready to do a whole lot of camping and kayak fishing. Nice. Nice. And uh, just run around and help my buddies out. You know, when they got days off, I go help them out. Or, you know, I'm on the road with the Innocence Project. Very yeah, good. he's doing a ton of speaking for us. I mean, he's sort of an ambassador. And that's invaluable. That is invaluable. And, Mark, your book, you can pr- blind, ju- blind Injustice, you can get it on Amazon? Yeah, on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or um, some bookstores. But, uh that's uh, doing very well. It just got a very positive review by The Economist a couple of days ago. Um, it's, it's doing very well with reviews and everything. And so I think uh, if you're interested in this type of case and this issue, that's a good place to start. Well, I can tell you I'm going to get it and read it for sure. And for you listeners out there, I hope you read it. It sounds like a fabulous uh, read and a real wake-up yeah, call. case is one of the future cases. A real wake-up call. That's, yeah, that's great. So for the rest of you, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, all of those things. And uh, particularly to you, Dean, Merry Christmas. Thank you very much, dear. Thank you. Yeah. And so for, the, for, for everybody, us. I'm sorry, what, say what? I was saying thank you for having us and Happy oh, Holidays abs- to you too. Abs- absolutely. I'm so happy you were here today. Uh, it's the week before Christmas, it couldn't be better. It was such a pleasure having you on the show today. A real quick shout out to my great sponsors, Jim Nanos and Nicole Cusinelli, publishers of PI Magazine. And uh, if you want to get some additional press out there, uh, Mark and Dean, why don't you send in an article into PI Magazine? You can get them on the website at pimagazine.com. There's a lot of investigators out there that would be interested in your story. And if you're interested in advertising on PIC Classify, you can contact my wonderful producer, Sondra Rogers, at the voicemirror.com platform. And tune in again next week as we declassify topics of interest for private investigators and the world. It's PIC Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Mark and Dean. You've been listening to PIC Classified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.